Welcome to the Magnificast. This is a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Uh, I'm Matt. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Uh, my research interests are media archaeology and cultural theory, and obviously uh, Christianity and leftist <laughs> politics. Uh, I'm Dean, a Catholic PhD student in philosophy at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. But before we get any further, we want to remind everybody about the new Magnificast voicemail that I know is all saved in your contacts now. You're just waiting to uh, push the call button. We're telling you, push it. Push it right now. Pause this podcast. Go into your contacts list and uh, give us a ring. Uh, we made this Google Voice number, if you didn't, didn't hear it last episode, where you can call us and leave a message and we might play it on the podcast. Uh, at this point, we pretty much have to because we don't, we don't have any yet. Um, the phone number is 815 815- four zero eight zero seven four five so feel free to call us ask us your pressing and intricate questions about leftism and christianity uh if you call in like i said there's a pretty good chance you're gonna get on the next episode so one more time the number is eight one five four zero eight zero seven four five uh if you guys don't call then dean's mom will and uh don't don't let that happen <laughs> she's busy she, she doesn't have time for that so uh, please just like if you could help out around the house a little bit and uh just call this number uh help think of the moms (laughs) think of the moms uh okay so this week on the magnificast we're talking with amaria shea a graduate student at vanderbilt uh she wrote an essay recently that we're going to kind of talk over called of flesh and spirit race reproduction and sexual difference in the turn to paul in this episode we talk uh, about uh, all the important topics uh pizza mostly uh, why Paul is weird and Hagar is awesome, uh, problems with universality, reconciliation, and the intersections of class, race, gender, reproductive labor, Rod Dreher, and more. All of the things that you love about this podcast. Here they are. <laughs> it's a re- required listening for uh, PhD students in Dreher studies. What have you been up to? What are you up to? What do you do? Where do you live? Uh, uh, what, what's exciting? <laughs> yeah, so I'm a um, graduate student at Vanderbilt University, which is in Nashville, Tennessee. And right now I'm working on my dissertation proposal, which is kind of like an elaboration on the essay we read in some ways. Cool. Um. So I've been working on that. I have a first draft finished, and I'm revising that and trying to finish it by the end of the week and making it progress. Also, I've just been hanging with friends, um, trying to read for fun a little bit, and uh, playing music, trying to get my house in order. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> What kind of music do you make? Um, I like to make a lot of different music. Sometimes I do more like beats kinds of stuff. So like electronic or hip hop influence kind of stuff. And then I also like am a singer songwriter and do more like folky, like acoustic 
soul kind of things. So that's awesome. Just depends on how I feel. Uh, Dean, what have you been doing, man? Um, I have been uh, writing a ton. So I have this job as a journalist. <clears throat> at this thing called America Magazine, run by the Jesuits, and it is a good job, uh, but it keeps me very busy um, talking to people and looking things up. And uh, actually, I just had a, an article published that I think is pretty cool um, about this place called the King's University in Alberta, and they're interesting because they're like a small Christian liberal arts school, and uh, they, 10 years or so ago, decided mm-hmm. to really take on board the case of this guy named Omar Carter who's the youngest person to ever be held in Guantanamo Bay. So uh, it was just this like small cohort of, uh, I don't know, evangelical Christians just decided that they were going to advocate for justice for this guy. And they were really instrumental in getting him out of prison. And he's like a student at their university. And I don't know, that was a really weird and cool story to report on. So yeah, sometimes I have to write stories that I'm like not super into, but this one gave me a lot of hope um, to Christian's could do something good and that was a good thing super cool <laughs> yeah that article is really cool um i've been passing it around to a lot of my colleagues over here and they are excited by it good i'm glad to hear that like three other yeah. people have read it that makes me feel good <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah man it's good it's a good thing uh, what about you matt what have you been up to uh i have been coming to terms with my obscene course load next semester um i got too many classes that i'm teaching and it is, I guess, a good problem to have. Uh, it's, it's the, it's the job that I wanted, and it is <laughs> the situation that I've gotten myself into. So, I can only blame myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I've been like working through my syllabi and like setting them up and trying to design good courses that don't suck. And uh, we'll see if I've done a good job. <laughs> uh, in light of that, uh, of all of that, I ate a really good pizza today. <laughs> so Congrats. that's the best. Yeah, uh, it was at this place called Pizza Head in St. Louis, and uh, it was so good. Um, I could eat it all the time if I had the opportunity, <laughs> but I don't. Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm all about pizza. That was the best pizza I've ever Pizza's had. Great. So, so there. I know. It's the best. It's pizza my favorite food. <laughs> pizza is life. This is now a podcast about pizza and leftist politics. Yeah, I'm actually writing my <laughs> dissertation about pizza. Toward a theology of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, Gaza Circle uh, or something. Something. <laughs> the university of ingredients superior mm. to the analogy of pizza ingredients. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, the the slice proceeds from the father uh, to my mouth. I, don't know. Yeah, I was just gonna say there has to be some joke about like the spirit always being underemphasized. Maybe it's like the tomato sauce or something. Oh my god, that's, right. that's exactly right. So then Chicago deep dish style theological, you know that school of theology really tries to emphasize the spirit by just dousing pizza in tomato sauce. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. What's the uh? Oof. What are the main like East West? You know, the, the Catholic Orthodox uh, split. The first split in pizza making. I wonder. Mm. That's New a good York style versus Free. Chicago style. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, but which which is which? Because then you have to have a, a variety of Protestant uh, pizza yeah. offshoots, pizza I heretics. Think, I think New York would definitely be the Latin tradition because it's like most well known, probably. Well. If I could interject oh, here for one moment. Oh, we're getting into some serious uh, 
I debates now. I believe that uh, <laughs> Catholicism and the Neapolitan pizza are actually wow. one and the same. They come from the same geographical region. They uh, have origins of colonialism <laughs> uh, in their ingredients. Uh, t- tomatoes don't grow in this Europe. This just got deep. Uh, <laughs> wow. This is like the uh, Council man. of Trent over here. <laughs> yeah, if there's one thing I can talk competently about forever, it's probably uh, it's probably pizza. So, yeah, we we <laughs> need to call a council, actually, like a formal pizza council. <laughs> this is important work. Sounds good. Good job. good well uh now that we've already got that on the table um some friction right right away right up front i don't know it's not how we usually like to start this podcast but here we are um just getting it all on the table if you will uh let's just move into chatting a little bit about some of your research amaria so we read an essay by amaria um in the journal for cultural and religious theory or is it culture and religious theory i forget every time it's cultural and religious theory Okay, I, I like I published some reviews on their website, and I still can't ever remember. <laughs> will never nice. remember. It's it's embarrassing on my CV, I'm sure. But um, anyway, the article <laughs> is called "Of Flesh and Spirit: Race, Reproduction, and Sexual Difference in the Turn to Paul." It's a good good title. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Uh, thank you for allowing me to read it on on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> So usually we ask people to like give a kind of elevator pitch about the thing that they wrote when we have them here, which is easier when someone just writes like a five page article um, in a you know magazine and a little harder when uh, it's a, a real dense academic thing. Yeah. But uh, I'm I'm going to ask you to do it uh, unfairly. Um, right. <laughs> if you had to give like an elevator pitch of this paper, what would you say? This paper is essentially asking why is the figure of the slave overlooked in the turn to paul the larger implications of the paper would be like in theology in general political theology in general um but i look at paul's use of the figure of hagar in galatians and how right after paul has made the proclamation that there's neither slave nor free or Jew or Greek or male or female. He goes into this allegory about Hagar and Sarah that um, really emphasizes um, that Hagar is a slave and, in fact, uh, is arguing in such a way that, like, Hagar's slaveness is essential to uh, his argument working. So he's arguing basically that um, the children of the slave woman will not inherit the kingdom of God, basically the promises of salvation from Christ, which come through uh, the children, come from the children of the free woman, which is Sarah. But basically what he's trying to do is establish like Gentile belonging through legitimizing their claims to being descendants of Abraham. And in order to do that, he uses the distinction between Hagar the slave and Sarah the free woman. So I look at that passage and <laughs> uh, pause use of that, and then I try to connect um, how he like distinguishes her slaveness as like the flesh and Sarah's freedom as the spirit to kind of think about some contemporary issues in Black studies and racial capitalism using Hortense Spillers 
and her work on um, this essay called Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe. That's really influential, um, but I think kind of helps critically locate uh, I guess like some issues that are important to me so my work kind of like I used like Dolores Williams Sisters in the Wilderness as a kind of like thematic companion to think about Hagar's position in Galatians and then I kind of ended what with using Hortense Spiller's uh, critical work to kind of think about what's the connections between this kind of theological heritage of figuring the slave woman in distinction from the free woman and the different claims to kinship that that enables that was a long elevator pitch but no that was a good it was a good elevator some pitch, elevator though. rides are long <laughs> it's true we went to the penthouse for that one <laughs> this essay is really cool uh it's i mean i'm also not gonna lie that it's also kind of over my head i'm not a theologian so um some of this is, is not uh like i don't directly understand it but that's okay um, what I've found really interesting about your essay is, I don't know, I guess kind of a connection it has to my own church's, uh, like mm-hmm. theology and, um, ecclesiology. So, uh, that Galatians bit, the no mm-hmm. Jew, no Greek thing is kind of a big deal for totally. all the Christians. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, it's especially a big deal for my tradition. Um, I, uh, I am involved in the Free Methodist Church, which is a really small branch of Methodism that, like, I don't know, basically no one knows about. Um, and it's got a lot of its own mm-hmm. problems, for sure. But the, uh, like, one of the sort of, like, founding members of the denomination is this guy named B.T. Roberts. And uh, B.T. Roberts has, like, this really strong affiliation with this verse uh, because he was an abolitionist and because he was also... Uh, someone who was like really for uh, the ordination of women. And so he, so he uses this, this verse to like uh, to justify those points um, that, you know, you should, mm-hmm. uh, you know, should be an abolitionist and you should ordain women. But the thing that is really interesting to me about this article is that you kind of complicate that a little bit, that the universality that's that, that he finds in this article. And that I think I find this article too, has a little bit of a, like a darker side to it or like a, um, I don't know. It's it's a it's not a true universality, or there's a there's a complication of a universality. Could you talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I think that it's an, a really strong like thing that I'm trying to get across in the essay, which is like I mean, part of what I'm pro- trying to problematize, I think, is the kind of ways that this passage gets used as like a liberatory kind of moment and like Paul is actually like on the side of like marginalized people or something he's the true communist right That's... yeah like he's bringing yeah. like some real like universal like free subjectivity or something uh, and I guess part of what I'm trying to highlight is how these kinds of claims to universalism often come at the expense of some people's flesh and blood and like how um, those distinctions get overcome can actually create more problems than it solves. So well, another big person in this essay I use is Daniel Boyarin, who is a Jewish scholar and He's kind of, like, talking about how, like, Paul is in a kind of predicament because as a Jew, he's, like, 
trying to like avoid a exclusionary like position in relationship to the Gentiles and is like trying to be more inclusive, which like is not necessarily a bad impulse, but the way he does it is to like end up kind of trying to overcome the fleshly particularity of Jewish people and um, linking that, making that move through the figure of Hagar is really interesting to me because it seems to suggest that Hagar's like slaveness and her Gentileness and her like being a woman are precisely the things that like exclude her from and her children from inheriting like being heirs to the promise and so I guess it's like suggests to me yeah like yeah this like kind of underside to these like claims that people often make without thinking through how their claims are made and like what is I guess like who is kind of not thought about in how those claims are made so it's just like an assumed thing that it's a liberatory claim, but when you kind of look at it closely, um, this like slave, this Gentile slave woman is like actually her condition as a slave, her literal condition as a slave is like required to be maintained in order for the allegory to work. And so uh, it's really interesting you brought up this guy who's an abolitionist because like a part of my like like somebody like I've researched some abolitionist literature and like a lot of their rhetoric is actually really racist and like a lot of their like legitimizations Mm -hmm. (laughs) for uh, abolition are actually pretty racist so there's this guy like Benjamin Rush who's a founding father and he's like an abolitionist and he's like thinks that blackness is a form of leprosy and is like a skin disease that needs to be cured by like trying to find ways to like whiten black skin and so he's like ties it to this like christian universal vision of like salvation and civilization as like his legitimation for abolition so it's like just interesting to me i think the ways that this kind of white abolitionist language and desire is also coupled with some really problematic shit yeah yeah it is for sure um I don't know all the particularities of B.T. Roberts' abolitionism, but I can't imagine it's completely blameless uh, at the very least. You know, that's a good. It's a good point to bring up, though. That's um, it's a good insight that people who are abolitionists are not. Uh, I don't know. Always the best. I think side it's there. yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it's like too. I rather than like turning it into maybe kind of a moral claim, it's more like there's a kind of tendency I think of white people even people trying to be like on the right side of history or something to kind of uh presume that like the there's a problem with blackness that needs to be overcome rather than like a problem with whiteness that needs to be overcome and so like the way of like getting around black oppression or something is to make black people like white people um and i think Part of what I'm trying to point out is like how that universalizing kind of tendency like requires trying to make this like marked flesh of the slave or something into the free, but actually um 
it's kind of clear that the distinction or that the overcoming doesn't really work or that the distinction still exists in some sense, literally. And so that literal distinction actually problematizes the kind of metaphorical or allegorical like freedom that's being claimed. So one thing I think was really interesting about your article, Amaria, is how you really use the the figure of Hagar to challenge Paul as like a, uh, like she finds this liberating moment alone, like in the wilderness, excluded from that uh, really weird universalizing story in history. Um, and uh, it's, it's interesting, as I was reading it, I was like, whoa, I wonder, you know, there's all this stuff about this return to Paul and uh, Paul being the, the ur-revolutionary or whatever. Um, but meanwhile, there's all these other characters in the Bible who find like their own kind of liberating uh, moments and potential uh, in ways that just get like very overlooked, mm-hmm. it seems to me. Um, yeah. Could you say something more about that? Like, what would it mean to, um, I don't know, think from like the position of somebody like Hagar, like what would that uh, look like in terms of theology? How would you do that in terms of challenging, uh, you know, trends that are happening right now? Uh, Is that kind of, do I have you completely wrong? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of one of the questions my dissertation is trying to ask. Like in part, like I think you have to go through a kind of problematizing of the kind of, figures like Paul in Christian theology in order to get to a place where you can then like look at what else is happening in the text and like who from the underside is not being attended to and I feel like that's one of the like amazing things about Dolores Williams book Sisters in the Wilderness which I don't know if y'all have read but that would be a great it's a really well written but also like um, not jargon-laden kind of, like, theological text. And what she does that I kind of try to repeat here uh, in a different way is, like, she looks at the Hagar story in Genesis and she rereads... I mean, I guess it's, like, actually not thought of as the Hagar story in Genesis when she reads it, right? It's thought of, like, as the story <laughs> of Abraham and Sarah and, like, this, like kind of covenant between Abraham and God being established. But um, she goes back and rereads it and like looks at the figure of Hagar and talks about the figure of Hagar as a route to black women's um, condition in contemporary society. And what she's not trying to do is be like, Hagar is a black woman as much as she's trying to show that the structural position that Hagar inhabits is like the same kind of structural position that black women inhabit in um, our contemporary society. So she talks about issues of like surrogacy and for Dolores Williams, surrogacy is like um, this concept um, basically how, I mean, I guess the handmaid's tale is really popular right now, but <laughs> that's true. I watched it. Like the, um, the kind of, like, the ways, basically, that handmaids are used as surrogate um, laborers for these women in the Handmaid's Tale, right? In the biblical narrative, it that's what happens to Hagar. Uh, Sarah can't get pregnant, and so um, she tells Abraham to use Hagar to get pregnant. And so Hagar, the slave, 
gets pregnant, has this kid, Ishmael. Uh, but basically what Dolores Williams does with her concept of surrogacy is talk about the kinds of, like, substitution at work and the kind of labor that goes into surrogacy. So, like, Hagar's reproductive labor is taken advantage of. Um, also, she's, like, just raped as a slave, but it's, like, not legible as a rape because of her position as a slave. Basically, Dolores Williams just calls attention to all the different kinds of labor that come along with surrogacy and uses that to point to black women's labor during slavery as surrogates in white people's households or in the fields. The ways that that, like disabled them from taking care of their own families in order to take care of white families, but then also how after slavery, right, a lot of black women's labor has happened in the domestic sphere, and that's been, like, really overlooked. Um, And I would extend that, like, one way that I try to extend that today is just, like, thinking about reproductive justice in general and, like, how black women's wombs are kind of always under attack by the state through, like, criminalization, uh, through the murder of black children, through, like, imprisoning black mothers. Um, So, like, there's all kinds of ways in which that kind of, like, reproductive labor uh, is still, like, occurring today. Uh, So I think one of the things that, like, gets highlighted when you attend to these kind of stories from the underside is, like, actually a lot of things become more politically explicit in some ways and, like, more politically relevant. And so I think a lot of the spiritualizing tendencies of a figure like Paul in the ways that, like, I don't know. A lot of people try to read him as a materialist, but I just don't find that super convincing, I guess. <laughs> and and I think that there's, like, a these other figures provide a way more materialist kind of, like, in to um, connecting scripture to politics. Yeah, um, that you bring up labor in in the register of reproductive labor is, um, it's really interesting and it, it makes me um, think of like a different writer. This is uh, broadly a podcast about Christianity and mm-hmm. leftist politics. And uh, when people mention the words reproductive labor around me, I always think about this uh, really great uh, Marxist feminist uh, named Silvia Federici. Um, and like in the, in the sixties, uh, she was a part of a movement called labor, or, uh, wages mm-hmm. for housework. Um, and, uh, a different social context for sure. But, um, I remember reading that as like a, uh, I don't know, a young MA student and being like completely, com- um, and being completely struck that like, uh, domestic labor and reproductive labor is like real labor and real work. And it's like stupid not to recognize those things. Uh, but I don't know because of like intersecting uh intersecting like lines of like domination it's like easy to not think of those things as Mm -hmm. real work but uh that's obviously a misstep i guess uh so that you uh draw that out with hagar i found that like uh pretty illuminating for me or at least a a way to rethink this story that i i guess i've probably heard a bazillion times in church but never really thought very hard about amaya cites uh silvia federici toward the end of the essay um, oh really footnote uh just kind of as a yeah. Why didn't you read me a, more closely, a, a really Matt? Cool I'm really offended. <laughs> you didn't read the footnotes. Yeah, sorry. Uh, 
That's so dumb. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I don't say that to be a, a tattletale on you, Matt. Um, though uh, I'll take that byproduct. Um, just gonna pocket that for later. One point, me. Uh, zero points, Matt. Um, <laughs> That's fair. But, but uh, anyway, um, that being said, I, I wonder, Amaria, like, could you talk a little bit more about that specifically, like reproductive labor, and uh, you know. I don't know. Leftism is a really weird thing, especially right now uh, in the United States and elsewhere. But I don't know. Like, we've been tracking certain conversations on the left for a while on this podcast, and sometimes it's cool, and then other times it's like, it feels like people aren't actually thinking that hard about what's happening or how they should proceed or anything like that. And this question of reproductive labor um, is like a really weird thing that Marxists have attended to in interesting ways, like Sylvia Federici. Um, and I appreciate that mm-hmm. you bring that out here because it's not only something, it's not only that like Hagar is an underlooked at figure in the Bible or, or whatever, but even that issue of reproductive labor uh, is underlooked at just in the left in general. And, and that connection is really explicit the way you, you pull it out. So could you just say something about that? Like, what would it mean for leftists and Christians to take that seriously? Like you kind of suggest here. Part of what I'm trying to do here is think the questions of like economy and labor in a different way. And I think, like, one of the fights on the left right now is, like, e- e- like class and economics versus, like, identity politics or something. And I, like, that makes me so furious because I'm just like, this, like, this is a weird staging of the problem if you just, like, open your eyes to, like, histories of racial capitalism and also like histories of like black radical like scholarship like this idea that um somehow like these identities are a distraction from class relations is i just think kind of offensive and um and also i guess like to me, it seems to, like, ignore, like, precisely how we get to the kind of economy that we have today. Like, what kind of labor formations, like, did capitalism depend on to develop into what we have today? Who is, like, most at risk for certain kinds of, like, precarity and, like, how is precarity distributed along, like, racial lines? Um, So part of um my intentions in this essay was just excuse me um like trying to use or not use but like show how like Hagar's situation illuminates something about like how you can't think these things separately like you have to think them together in order to understand how the how economy operates and so to me like economy does not like somehow symbolize some kind of like class first analysis to me economy is also about like structures of relationships in order to like determine how certain distributions of goods happen um uh and so like to me looking at the position of the slave within this like like familial economy like highlights certain things about like how the slave is figured as a threat, for instance, to this line of inheritance. Um, Once Sarah has, once Sarah and Abraham have a child together, Ishmael and Hagar have to get cast out because Ishmael is a threat to 
of Isaac's inheritance. And so, like, already you have this, like, kind of, like, conflict or antagonism that's, like, rooted in not just, uh, like, an economic inheritance, but also, like, a kind of kinship like inheritance of like a kinship line. And so we see that later in Galatians, right? Like Hagar's been disinherited from the line of Abraham and Paul's thought. And so like that removes certain like claims of like rights or legitimacy from her and her children or whatever. And something I've been thinking a lot about is how like, um, like kinship claims and the legitimacy that provides, like, operates today in our contemporary racial, like, economy. If we think about things like whose, like, grievances are able to be registered by the state, for instance, right? Like, Black people just being like, Black Lives Matter or something, like, is often extremely infuriating to a lot of white people's lives because... Black people don't have a claim of legitimacy to, like, the rights of citizenship in this country. And because of that, like, certain goods are withheld from Black people's lives. Things like police not shooting you for no reason, right? So, (laughs) like, there's, like, so I think that there's, like, a range of things that economy, like, looking at economic relations can cover and not just, like, the financial aspects, even though I think, like, class relations and the financial aspects are important, but I think it's interesting, like, if we think about policing as, like, policing of, like, a way of protecting private property, it's interesting to think about, like, police brutality against Black people and criminalization against Black people in that way as, like, a way of, like, foreclosing a certain kind of, like, inheritance of, um, goods whether those are public or private um to black communities and like actively dispossessing those communities and that's something we saw like in ferguson the department of justice went there and was like well they're just like finding these people like crazy and extorting money through them in unjust ways through how they're policing and criminalize these people so like all this stuff is tied up with uh like yeah, to me, it just, like, doesn't make sense as an analysis to try to, like, talk about class or, or economics without thinking about the racial structure that animates those relations. Um, so on this topic, I guess, of... Um economics versus identity politics or people who like only can consider one at one time or something like that um i mean like that's a super prominent discussion left i don't know it was a conversation we had a few episodes ago with a different uh a different uh guy and it was a completely fine conversation but um i i was wondering like uh in terms of like the spirit and flesh dichotomy you draw in your paper i wonder if we could even think of that conversation along those same terms like uh is the ability to only think of economics and class like is that the can we equate that with only thinking of spirit in some way and not thinking about the bodily particularities of people because that that to me makes a lot of sense i don't know what do you guys think about Mm. that (laughs) is there something analogous going on between um 
spirit and only thinking of class. That's interesting. I mean, I think the ways that it comes up in conversation, class is thought to be something that like transcends these like other markers, right? And so like class solidarity yeah. is this like transcendent kind of like relation that like all people are like brought into the 99% or something, right? Uh, that and so I think in often how it's narrated, it's like used that way a lot, actually. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna double down on this possibly bad opinion right now. That because <laughs> uh, because Mario, the way you're the way that you said that too, I guess uh, strengthened my uh, particular viewpoint in this in this moment. That uh, yeah, that that like in creating solidarity across class lines internationally, it does have that sort of sense of like disembodied community to it, where like um, I don't know people of the proletarian of any country is like, you know, all joined together in the fact that they're the proletarian, but it does uh, neglect, I don't know, all of the different uh, dynamics that play out in any given uh, geographical space and cultural space. But maybe that's like, I guess that's probably why like uh, Zizek and uh, Badiou or whatever find that type of thinking so appealing in Paul. I don't know, man. Uh, That's a weird direction, maybe. As far as like the spirit and uh, in class, being the spirit is um like part i guess part of like what i'm trying to do with this essay but also my work in general is be like we don't have to actually talk about these relationships this way and like we don't actually have to talk about class in this way um we don't have to talk about like race or gender or sexuality or identity politics in the way that that Hillary Clinton flowchart that like was completely nonsensical did <laughs> uh, and I mean I like I understand here's the thing like I get the like I guess I don't want to say fear of identity politics because it's kind of racist but like there are legitimate critiques of identity politics right and like a lot of like black radical folks and other like radical folks of color have like made those same like like made critiques of identity politics that also like um recognize that whiteness is an identity and whiteness has an identity politics too and like often these like class critiques of class first critiques of um identity politics forget that and don't understand like how whiteness is maybe affecting how they narrate and think about class relations and how they like posit it in some kind of opposition to identity politics. And so so yeah, I guess part of what I'm trying to establish is that like we can actually talk a lot about like economy and like class relations and like not think that that has like nothing to do with like structural positions that are raced and gendered kind of like formed on like the distinctions that those different positions like enable between something like the slave and the free. Yeah, could you say something about, okay, if we, uh, so here's the worry, I think, that a lot of, uh, I'm gonna just going to channel uh, the people that all, all three right, of us come are at me, bro. A fans of, I think. Yeah, all right, here I am, putting on my uh, my best, like, Jacobin voice. Oh, <clears throat> God. Okay, 
So, uh, oh, wow. uh, that, I'll have to link this podcast. Long as it can if, be. Oh no, that's triggering for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry. Um, okay, I'm gonna back right off that real quick. Uh, so, I think what a lot of those folks are worried about, though, is like, hey, whoa, if we don't have class, if that's not the thing, how are we gonna build solidarity? We gotta have, we gotta have a lot of people mm-hmm. shut this thing down. There's got, there's more of us than there are of them. It's just a big numbers game, and you gotta make sure you get all the numbers straight. And uh, all these other uh, conversations are, you know, making those numbers smaller and smaller and you can't amass the kind of force that you would need to uh, to shut that stuff down. Mm-hmm. So that's like the worry. And there's there's a, a, a vague, like commonsensical appeal to it, right, where the narrative that's told is like, well, it's just as simple as getting enough people mm-hmm. in the right place at the right time to like be friends. And uh, that's the revolution. Mm-hmm. Like everybody's a friend at the same time and that's it. Um, so could you speak a little bit to that, like, uh how does that logic operate um do you think it extends from this kind of uh pauline universalism that you're going after here and then also like what would we do um (laughs) this is such a dumb question i feel so bad asking anyone but like what would we do uh if we didn't have recourse to those kinds of solidarity building uh narratives that have you know uh one revolutions in the past like what are alternative ways of building that kind of uh, resistance that you would need yeah well, I guess to me, like, solidarity is not a concept that only has been used in relationship to class. So I think a lot about, like, black revolutionary black people who, like, called for solidarity with, like, black people's liberation struggles. Yeah, like, Palestinian solidarity or something. Like, to me, it's like, um... The notion of, like, class solidarity being what will bring everyone together, to me, will always probably, will always prioritize white people's, like, solidarity with a certain class of white people over solidarity with black people. And I guess my question is not so much, like, why are you pushing class solidarity as much as, like, um, why is it that when it comes to black solidarity, like, black people get sacrificed or something by these, like, movements that claim to be building, like, about building solidarity, but then will kind of sacrifice black people to the wolves if that, like, maintains class solidarity or something. And so I guess it's, like, to me it's less that... I think building class solidarity is a bad thing as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And, like, actually one way to, like, strengthen solidarity across classes is to, like, deal with that kind of racism that can inhibit some of the solidarity that folks are trying to build. Maybe I could like comment it also in another direction and saying, uh, if, um, if maybe there's a, a weird Pauline legacy to the left, like if there's a Pauline universality that motivates some of these conversations, what would it mean to have like a Hagarian left? Like what is the kind of, a uh, um, you know, <laughs> what's the kind of strength that she finds in contrast to, uh, the kinship narratives that you criticize rightly with respect to like Abraham and Sarah. Um, what does that kind of strength Ugh. lend to like leftist struggles? Oh, you're trying to make me just 
reveal my um cool turn in my dissertation on this show. No. <laughs> no. You can protect your intellectual property if you want to, 100%. And that is not just, that's not like a dick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I guess part of it too is like, I actually like don't have an answer for that yet. And I think like, that's totally fair. <laughs> something that I'm trying to like think through in my work is like, what does it mean to try to like, follow in Hagar's legacy instead of like a Pauline legacy and I mean I think part of it to me is kind of resisting like narratives of belonging and like kinship and like reconciliation that are used to that like pretend to kind of be really liberative or freeing but actually like depend upon um, somebody's flesh and blood being kind of sacrificed in order for that freedom to exist. So, like, part of, I think, I mean, part, I think part of a Hagerian legacy would question the value of freedom as it's given through these narratives of belonging and kinship and family and, like, ponder, like, like what is this freedom built on and like who's paying the cost of this freedom and like how is this inheritance dependent on somebody else's disinheritance so i think maybe part of it would be just to like start asking different questions instead of assuming the value of freedom or the like value of inheriting this promise like yeah, I think it requires us to think about those relations of power a little differently. Yeah, um, that's, a, I think, a good direction to go in the conversation. I, so you said, I, I mean, that's a, a point well taken, that there are bodily costs to um, the rhetoric of freedom that I think are used pretty readily. I know something I hear a lot play out on my campus is, like, lots of talk about reconciliation, and and uh right it's like a word that is it is liberative it's like a a good rhetorical turn i suppose but uh you said that there's uh right the cost of bodies bound up with that could you explain that a little bit yeah well i wrote a blog series actually for women in theology a few years ago that was like about like refusing to reconcile or like refusing reconciliation part of it is like well, I grew up in, like, evangelical, like, Black Southern Baptist Church, and every year we did these terrible, like, pulpit swap things where, like, one year my dad was the pastor, so one year my dad would go to preach at this white church, and, like, our congregation would go over there, and then we'd, like, worship together and have some snacks after and have very polite conversation and like, wow, this is what heaven's gonna look like is like something that was said all the time. <laughs> and then the next year they would come to our church and, you know, the white pastor would like love preaching in front of black people and he was like, <laughs> Oh, you know, why you know, my congregation's like, Pastor, why don't you preach like this at our church? And I'm like, How come y'all don't respond the way they do here? 
And so, so there's it's pretty cool that you guys stopped racism like that. Yeah, it was really great. <laughs> it was great how much racism we stopped. We stopped a huge <laughs> amount of racism. We were the best at stopping racism. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's like part of like the context I grew up in. But then, um, my dad was just like really active in like racial reconciliation com- conversations and like would make had like a conference on racial reconciliation that he like organized every year for several years so i was like very inundated with like racial reconciliation as a part of the gospel and then i got to college and i was like well why people don't give a fuck and (laughs) like really what it is is like i came to see that like what racial reconciliation functions as is a way of like removing responsibility from white people for like being accountable for the legacy of white supremacy and it's like continued existence today and so there's this idea that like we can have like some kind of cultural exchange and that is supposed to like somehow like repair like the material dispossessions and like the violence against black people's flesh and blood and the like years people have like lost in prison like somehow like just being nice to each other is supposed to like fix that and <laughs> like that's just ridiculous but actually like a lot of people have a theology that basically is like this kind of wishful magical thinking that like oh jesus unites us all like our christian identity should be before any racial identity or anything but really it's just like that's actually a way of like obscuring the kind of relations of power that continue to exist between people and so yeah i hate reconciliation i think it should die <laughs> you guys can like use you make a strong case though it's uh it's pretty good actually i think that articulation of it is uh yeah you guys can use that as the pull quote for this i hate your reconciliation <laughs> yeah it yeah. will it'll be in the tiny <laughs> yeah. letter but in big letters <laughs> in the tiny letter it's interesting you say that because i, I live in canada and uh Reconciliation is like a very big mm. word here because they had a big truth and reconciliation commission yeah. with indigenous people that ended a few years ago. And uh, it's a real struggle for indigenous people, I think, especially to even figure out what that is supposed to mean, like how they're supposed to mobilize that word politically. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was just talking uh, with a couple of people for an article that I'm writing now on indigenous people uh, reacting to it's it's Canada's 150th birthday oh. this year. And uh, they're all basically just like, what? How are we supposed to deal with this? Like, 150 years celebrating like how we've been colonized yeah. and like not like completely disrespected, etc. So, yeah, it's hard because the reconciliation is like the thing that Justin Trudeau comes out and is like, yeah, we're all gonna reconcile, right? Uh, that's the thing so we're, we're all ready working to towards. Reconcile and, uh, this year. All... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they're <laughs> all just like, what? Not like you don't even know what the problem is. Yeah. Like, you can't reconcile. Like we're we're not even on the same page. Uh, and it's like that language of reconciliation bars uh bars a lot of canada from ever even coming to terms with the fact that there was an issue yeah i mean it's uh one thing i point out in this uh blog series that i wrote is like the 
difference between interpersonal and structural, like, antagonisms or conflict. So, in some ways, like, is reconciliation maybe possible between an individual indigenous person and, like, an individual, like, white settler? Like, totally not going to like foreclose that or like say that people can't have some kind of healthy relationship that seriously wrestles with and deals with the different kinds of relationships of power that come from those different social positions uh but that's not the same thing as like a structural kind of reconciliation and uh that would actually require like a deep transformation of the way things operate Mostly because, like, I think a lot of people think, like, oh, well, we can give you X, Y, Z. We can give you, like, affirmative action or something. Or we can just, like, in, as far as the, like, U.S. and Black people go, like, we'll free you from slavery. Like, that's basically, like, the reconciliation. <laughs> and yeah, you're reconciled. Like, so now we're all good. Like, um, but that doesn't actually think about, like, one, the dispossession that occurred, but also, like, how you would like maintain equitable relations if like the way you've been operating historically has been so inequitable like you actually have to like structurally change things in order to like reproduce a more just society so like part of it is like the like rec the thing about reconciliation is like you can't even get to that conversation about like how can we like put in place and like reproduce more just conditions it's kind of just like well we acknowledge that this thing happened even though we still aren't like very clear on like why you're so mad in the first place but like we're all good now yeah like totally cool like yeah i'm gonna go home and like have some you know soul food with my black friend and like it's all good reconciliation <laughs> It, to me, whenever people start talking about reconciliation, it, it does just always seem like um, like uh, seeking forgiveness from like what should like what they're trying to set up to be like a zero point, like a completely objective position where it's just like, well, we're we're sorry or whatever, and uh, yeah. only on our terms though, never on the right. I mean, it's very terms. it's a very controlled discourse. It's never going to produce anything good because it's always on white people's terms and so like already forecloses like the self-determination of like black people or indigenous people in like deciding like what uh what the terms are for reconciliation and I, like i feel like most black or indigenous folks wouldn't even like want to talk about reconciliation they want to talk about like reparation and like having the harms repaired in some kind of way but it's in, what's interesting is like what often happens is like white people will just talk about like the incalculable like debt they owe or something or how like the harm was of such a great magnitude that it like can't be repaid and use that as a way to like not have to give any kind of repair for the things that happen like <laughs> oh this was such a tragedy in our nation's history and like it can never be made up for and we can only like get along now and that's what's gonna like heal these wounds <laughs> and it's just like what if you like you know 
burned down my house and then I'm like, I'm really sorry I did that. If we can just get along now, like I think that can heal. I, listen, I can't like I can't afford to buy you a new house, so can we just like forget about yeah. it? It's just like what that doesn't solve the situation that now I'm ho- homeless. <laughs> it just seems so silly that it's like well, it's just such a big number. Like I can't I can't count that high. Well, it's like well, yeah, no, we, it's we like, probably exactly. It out. And like, like there's all know. kinds of like folks who are like actually we've calculated and. You know, with inflation, <laughs> this is like how much money like slaves created for the economy. So like, let's totally figure out a way to like distribute that. Yeah. So like, when people, I mean, make those arguments, it's just actually really revealing about the fact that like they just don't care and don't want to do it. And to me, I would just like rather people like just be honest about the fact that they don't care and don't want to do it then like be like oh you know it was such a tragic thing that <laughs> happened and we really really have work to do but we just need to talk to each other more you know just bridge like bridge those differences and like that's what's gonna fix this yeah it's like more insulting i totally. guess than anything else yeah i feel like i go on rants a lot about white liberals these days but honestly like <laughs> You know, Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't lying when he was talking about white liberals being the worst. Because I'm just like, if you're, like, <laughs> racist and you just let me know, I can avoid you. But if you're, like, a white liberal, they're always, like, trying to, like, be your friend so they can feel better about themselves. And it's just like, dude, just, like, give it up. In terms of, like, reconciliation and sort of, like, the, I don't know, the not not good at all the like kind of job it does um i I, to me it seems like it's like almost a mirror of the evangelical like um like prayer forgiveness like where you like just pray to Mm. jesus really quick like please oh my god yeah i've done so many dumb things please forgive me or whatever and it's like that's a really good thing that works matt i don't know what you're talking about that works (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah uh i mean like i hope so yeah i've had like five virginities it's like (laughs) It works so well. <laughs> well, it just seems like the same sort of logic, though, where you're making, like, a really quick, like, uh... Yeah. <laughs> like, pithy, <laughs> pithy plea for forgiveness, where, I don't know, the those things seem very similar. Sorry, what, what else no. are we going to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I think part of the point I was trying to make at the end of the essay, though, is, like, um... Like, I think James Cone is someone who got who experienced a lot of criticisms in, like, the late 90s and uh, early to mid-2000s, I guess. And, like, I... Like, to me, like, James Cone embodies, like, a completely non-reconciliatory, like, black theology. And, like, I am very, like, invested in exploring the possibilities of that um but there are like some black theologians who like put more value on reconciliation so like jd otis roberts who wrote around the same time james conner's writing has a book um about like like black theology and like reconciliation and it's like basically arguing that reconciliation is like this valuable thing and and I mean I feel like um 
I don't know. There are like ways that I think assert like like Christian belonging becomes a substitute for like racial belonging. Or there's a way like that a lot of people um, narrate like race race is like divisive or like racial divisions is something that like Christianity needs to overcome. Um, and to me, like the narration of like racial of racism as like a like harmful fragmentation or like division of like identities or something like is just like really weird. Cause I'm just like, actually there's like, a particular group that's responsible for like making this problem (laughs) so it's like weird to just be like we all are so fragmented and divided from each other and like even like yeah so i just like i do think that they're like you know to me like being a black theologian doesn't mean that you aren't also susceptible to a certain kind of christian logic of reconciliation or redemption and I think that, like, is something to be aware of in how we try to respond to white supremacy. Uh, I was trying to think of, like, some, like, really snappy good question that we could ask or conversation or something to, like, uh, cap this whole whole baby off. It's not what you do with babies, but that's what we're going to do. Wow. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> thank you did you have a good one no i said i was just i was just trying i didn't i didn't succeed it's just oh i see this is always the worst part of the podcast is like thinking of a way to bring things together and, things. yeah exactly uh, um, but oh by the way uh, Amaria, like all this uh nonsense is just gonna get cut out so it's not gonna be like this embarrassing thing of like oh no what do we say oh great <laughs> Like, I'm so glad some of the nonsense we cut out. Some of it's I'm actually very so funny. So glad people won't know how much I hated being. But, yeah, I'm also. Oh, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. No, I think that this podcast is great, <laughs> and I actually listen to you guys. What? No, and so I totally do. She yeah, just, she I listened just told to me. the Rod Dreher episode, <laughs> and that one was really funny. And I listened to the Vincent Lloyd one. I think I've listened to a couple other ones, but I don't remember the titles um this is unrelated but it's like been bugging me oh i listened to the christian anarchism one because i spent a lot of time with christian anarchists (laughs) oh nice that's cool i'm impressed (laughs) that you must you must have very good hearing to have listened to it so good for you yeah it's so quiet (laughs) Uh something something yeah exactly all i heard was um yeah this is, this is unrelated, but did you guys by any chance see, there's like a, there was a, um, article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed about Tommy Curry today? Did you guys see no. that? By I did, chance? but I haven't read it yet. Oh, uh, well, it's, uh, it's basically like a hundred more reasons to like not like Rod Dreher. So <laughs> just if yeah. you, uh. That guy is actually the worst. Yeah. yeah it's uh, like, quick, quick preview of the article. Uh, <laughs> he basically, um, is criticizing a, like, <laughs> Uh, a philosophy professor at Texas A&M who was like a person of color for suggesting that like uh, I don't know like black people should like arm themselves and defend themselves if necessary and then like Rod Dreher is like that's that's too far you're being crazy and then like um, 
and then uh, Tommy Curry, this like academic philosophy professor at Texas A&M, he like gets death threats, and then uh, after Rod Dreyer hears about his death threats, Rod Dreyer is like, "Man, he should arm himself and like uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like really protect his family." Uh, all right. <laughs> Rod, uh, the Confederacy was hashtag actually good Dreher. That's who you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the person I'm talking about right there, yeah. <laughs> he's such an upstanding guy. I love yeah, that guy. Yeah, he's up. He can't sit down. He, he just is. tells the truth like it. Most like days, he's on his feet. <laughs> <laughs> he's got that standing desk. He's ready to go. <laughs> standing desk? <laughs> uh. Oh my gosh. I would love to see Rod Dreher in his natural habitat of his like, uh, home office. <laughs> He's like tiny basement over uh, like one one light bulb with no uh, like no lampshade or anything, just standing at his desk. And also like one of those exercise balls that you, like you have to balance on to strengthen your core. Mm-hmm. I, just, I know he has. He one. definitely <laughs> has one of those. Uh, just riding to like the rhythm of an incessant leak. That's what I imagine. <laughs> Me too. Um, maybe here's a question we can wrap things up on. Then I guess. So Christianity has like some problems with the way it thinks through reconciliation for sure. Um, but is there anything, uh, I guess this is uh, probably too broad, but is there anything within Christianity that we can find that might direct us in like a right direction <laughs> in terms of, uh, not reconciliation, but like, uh, I don't know, something ma- like material that can be done. I'm just, I just wondering, like, is, is there a hope for Christianity in, t- in, in terms of like justice in the world? Uh huh. Well, I don't like um uh, talking about hope because I think it's another way that sometimes people deflect from like the actual difficulties and like violences and like structural inequities that like persist, and so like I don't <clears throat> really. N- think that there's a lot to like find hope well i guess there's a lot of hope in christianity but i think it should all like end too and (laughs) um i guess like to me like what's interesting about theological materials i guess is that they can kind of be used against themselves in some way like I think about like James Cone and his second book, A Black Theology of Liberation, which is a systematic theology. Um he's like extremely well versed in like systematic theology, especially Bardian theology and Tillichian theology. So he uses Karl Barth and like Paul Tillich in order to like kind of like uh I wouldn't say, like, to make his claims, but, like, he kind of uses them to, like, set the stage upon which he makes a lot of his theological interventions. And then, because they're so central to theology, I think, actually, that means a lot of his claims, like, hit at the heart of the problem with theology and the heart of Christianity. And to me, like... That's, like, something that I try to learn from and how I think about theology, which is, like, trying to know really well the ins and outs of a lot of white theology in order to, like, make a more incisive intervention into it and in order to, like, basically, I don't know, kind of confuse it with the blackness of black theology. And 
So for me, like, um, what's like, what's possible to what is possible to do with like Christianity or theology theology in a way that's like not awful. I think that depends on whether it can do justice to black life and black death. And I think a theology that's like striving to do that is going to operate on very different terms than like theology as it's given. And I think a theology that's trying to do justice to black life and black death will probably have to like rethink theology instead of understanding it in terms of like trying to find this like systematic coherence will actually encounter a lot of impasses in its speech about God and like actually like have a lot of like difficulties making sense in some ways and like it can't run from confronting those incoherences but really has to like attend to like what they mean and like what violence has produced those incoherences and those like silences theologically yeah you really perform all of that it seems to me in the article that we read um you know i I just couldn't help but think uh like as we're reading all these seemingly commonsensical but actually very (laughs) complex uh thoughts about the legacy of christianity because i was like oh yeah, uh, Paul says this thing and then immediately says this other thing, which is something I'd never thought about. I mean, I don't read the Bible very well or very often, quite frankly, because I go to a church that reads it for me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> like, I don't, you know, I've never made the connection that, like, right after the universalizing verse, you get this very particular verse. And uh, the fact that you reach back into Hagar uh, in her story to kind of make your point and say, hey, listen, this is another um, another thing that happens in this book, and it's really important, and there are other ways to think from it and uh, to think about other texts in light of it. Um, it just seems like exactly that, you know, using it against itself and trying to stir the waters, and um, I don't know, I really appreciated that. So uh, as a testament to um, what you were just saying, uh, I think I picked well, that up. That's good to hear. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Uh, thanks again to our guest, Amaria Shea, who uh, came and talked about her very cool essay. You can find it linked on our blog and probably on the Tiny Letter as well. Um, this is a good time to remind you that we have a Tiny Letter. It's a newsletter, so you can sign up for that on our website um, and get some additional material uh, about uh, Christianity and the left and whatever Dean and I are up to in any given week. Okay, cool. So uh, as usual, um, you can support us on Patreon, like us on Twitter, like us on facebook you don't like people on twitter you just you do that that's facebook stuff okay we'll do that write us an itunes review retweet us share us with your mom with your friends whatever do do that good stuff all right thanks for listening there will swim with all creation never get tired never bored don't worry someday there'll be no damn between us and our lord Jackson, keep your hoods up, keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, keep your hoods up, where you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind.
cold nights But we might mind if you leave too soon So come on now, it's still early At least I would else are you gonna do As we kissed in the alley by the Michigan theater Fall snow was blowing in the lights of the downtown Saw a spark in your eyes